I, I was driving my car back from a from the parking garage at the bar from the night before. Hadn't slept at all, and I drove through a red light and T-boned another car, and I got a DUI, my fourth DUI. I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm excited today on the line we have Sam Morris. Sam is the founder of the Unbreakable Human Collective and Managing Director, Head of Culture at Five to Flow. Sam, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Al. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, so uh, I realize you were born and raised in Vermont in the mountains. That's right. Yep. Just, just a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, re- only recently have I had the opportunity to go there the past few winters. I don't know about this winter with COVID, but uh-huh. uh, a relative of mine has a place on smugg- Smuggler's Notch. Oh, yeah. So, I'm very familiar, yeah. Beautiful, the, beautiful yeah. ski area. They've got kids. We've got kids. It's known as one of the like most family-friendly places um, as far as ski resorts. Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've skied it before. I mean, there's Vermont. I think the whole state is only like 150 miles north top to bottom so oh we did goodness. we did a lot of uh we we our mem my main mountain was stratton which was southern vermont but we did a lot of exploring all the way up to jp killington stowe smuggler's notch all this stuff yeah awesome yeah smuggler's notch is on the back side of stowe and you used to be able to cross over but they they cut that a while ago i think yeah. um, but beautiful beautiful area so i know uh, we're going to talk a little bit about yourself and your own challenges of dealing with some mental health issues but i'm wondering did did any of them begin as a kid or were these pretty much um did they manifest later in life that's a great question um looking back i can say they were there as a kid especially the anxiety you know there i i lived my life in a lot of fear as a kid because of um, some physical ailments some uh, really bad food allergies really bad asthma um, felt a lot different than my peers, was really, really scared of social social situations, 
um, you know, kids making fun of me because of my breathing or, or my inability to breathe. So the, look, I didn't recognize it at the time. Uh, you know, there was no, I wasn't diagnosed with anxiety, childhood anxiety or childhood depression or any of that. But looking back there um, and knowing what I know now and knowing how it did manifest later in life, I can definitely see the behaviors were there. Right. And it seems like, I know at least uh, once you hit college and stuff, you were quite an athlete, right? So were you ever able to overcome the asthma or did you just deal with it with medication and so forth? Yeah. So the, the sports that I chose, um, you know, growing up, it was skiing, it was, uh, golf and tennis were all, you know, pretty individual sports. And really, I mean, golf is, is walking. So there's not a lot of, you know, you're not really out of breath a lot there. Right. Tennis, you get a lot of breaks. You know, I think, I think they did a study where like in a five set, uh, Grand Slam tennis match. There's only about 35 minutes of actual tennis out of four hours. Wow. So, so when you boil that down, it's like you know, it's like 90 seconds at a clip, or that's a long point, or you know, 30 seconds here, five seconds here, and then skiing is the same way. You know, you run, you make a run, or you you make a couple of runs, and if you, when I was racing, you know, it's like two or three minutes, and then you get a break. So the sports that I gravitated to were were kind of perfect for me being an asthmatic and then um the there was medicine uh, inhalers and uh, and pills and, and allergy stuff that were involved as far as medication goes and then you know honestly the biggest shift in my asthma and allergies came when i made massive changes to my diet when i was about 35 years old i stopped eating gluten and dairy and uh, you know all of a sudden six months went by and i hadn't used my inhaler one time and i was like whoa you know, I, I, what I thought was 100% was actually only like 60%. Wow. And so I, I cut gluten and dairy out, and I this this whole new world opened up to me. I'm like, so this is what it's like to like breathe and like not have an asthma attack. And That's pretty so it was, cool. It, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I've heard other people say similar things just around like gut aches and not even realizing really that, that they were in constant stomach pain. I mean, not massive pain, but it, uncomfortableness until they went gluten-free. It was like, whoa, I didn't even really yeah. realize how yeah. bad it was until I went gluten-free. That's exactly it, man. Like I thought, like I was like, oh, this is just the way it is, and then there was this whole new world. That's cool. Uh, and you mentioned kids teasing you and fear of socializations and yeah. social situations. And right. Mm -hmm. uh, can you say more about that? Yeah, so it was, you know, the kids teasing me was, like, that was more at school when, like, walking through the hallways. Like, I uh, I had another thing where my um, my turbinates in my nose, which are the flaps of skin that warm the air that comes in and out of your nose, uh, were inflamed. So I, I, would, I had to be through my mouth a lot. So um, it was just, you know, it was just, like, kids will be kids, and, and they just chose to pick on me for that. And so that was one thing. But what really got me about the social situations, the, the parties – the birthday parties, the the hay rides, and all that stuff was was the allergy and the asthma. You know, I, I I felt this immense fear that like, what if I was to eat a cupcake that had a peanut in it? You know, what would I do? I, my parents weren't going to be around. I didn't. I wouldn't know how to handle myself. To, so there was like this fear of that. And then growing up in Vermont, there's a, just a ton of farms, and in every spring the pollen comes in just like, I mean, there's yellow clouds of pollen floating across the sky. Right. And so. This I had I just had this fear of like what would happen to me if I ate a peanut or had a severe asthma attack and my mom wasn't there my dad wasn't there so that was like that was the real social anxiety that kicked in and then 
just just the feeling so different. Like I'd watch all my peers run around and eat candy bars and cake at will, and I just felt I felt such a disconnect from that that I felt so uncomfortable in the situations that you know I would I would have my mom call up and be like, you know, Sam's not feeling well. He can't make it to the party, which wasn't a complete lie, but it was also really me just like not wanting to go experience that. And then when I found tennis, tennis really really did save my life in the sense that it gave me a really nice built-in excuse to like, it was more important to me as, as I got older, you know, when the party started to get more like, you know, alcohol based or, you know, real, real social stuff, not kids parties. You know, I, I was playing tennis tournaments all over New England in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, um, all, New York state, all these places I was going every weekend to play tennis tournaments. And so that was my, that was my preferred way to spend the weekend. So I didn't have to like have the conversations around, I'm scared to go to this party because I'm like, well, no, I'm playing tennis. It's more important to me. Right. And so that right. that you know that was part of the reason I gravitated towards tennis was because it was such a a mental break for me. Yeah. To to go do that instead of having to worry about socializing. And was your were your allergies bad to the point where you had to carry an EpiPen? Um. Yes, I had an EpiPen and I had a rescue inhaler um on my in my pocket at all times. Right. Wow. You so know, pretty I, severe. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's anaphy- anaphylaxis. I think actually, my, even to this day, like I was, it's probably like six years ago. I was in San Francisco and I got I ate some Thai food that had a peanut sauce that I didn't know was a peanut sauce, and I had a reaction. So it's still there. Um, I've I've gotten to the point now where I'm I, I'm very vigilant and I know what to look out for and if there's any doubt and all that stuff. So I, I very rarely happens anymore. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean like as a kid, it was always touch and go you know it was, it, it was like i had this built-in thing where uh, you know look and again i didn't recognize this at the time but looking back you know i questioned like if i was going to be breathing the next day or you know if i ate a peanut like is my this is it like is my throat going to close up right um there i mean there were times when i would have such a severe asthma attack that i would end up you know blacking out because of lack of oxygen and end up in the i would wake up in the hospital like in an actual quarantine in a tent Wow. Holy smokes. Yeah. No wonder you had some anxiety going on. <laughs> yeah. you, you, um, you know, I was thinking these days, the, the food allergies, I mean, the dangerousness of some of them is a little bit different, but I think there are so many more kids with so many allergies these days that it's pretty common, like kids will bring their own treats to a party or something. I know my kid, uh, one of my, two now, one was more recently di- diagnosed to have celiac and uh-huh. it's not like your allergy where they have to carry an epi or something, but my, my daughter would definitely puke her guts out if she eats it. And uh, yeah. so she has to be really careful and she gets a little paranoid, like, nope, I'm not going to eat that unless I know who cooked it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, good. yeah, she's really good about it. But I think, like I said, it's a lot easier and more common these days that, you know, she'll pull out her own slice of pizza if she's going to a pizza party and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wow. So were you able to talk to anybody about all of your fears and things? Did you share those with your parents? Did they know just how fearful you were of, of dying from the asthma or the allergies? You know, honestly, I didn't even know how fearful I was of it. Right. I just like, I just knew it was kind of just like, it, it was, I didn't really have any way. I didn't think it was, no, it was kind of like the gluten thing. Like this was like, this was normal to me. Yeah. I, I didn't really know that there was like something wrong or something different or that this was going to affect me later in life. Right. Um, but I, but I did know, I mean, I was aware of the, like, I don't want to go to that party. Like I was aware of that, but that, that was kind of the extent of my awareness of it. 
was that I just don't feel comfortable there, so I'm going to avoid that. It, it didn't register to me as like fear or anxiety or depression. Right, right. And a lot, I mean, that's, there are definitely kids like that, right, who, who don't want yeah. the party scene, who, who want to avoid those, so. Yeah, um, I, think, I think, as you mentioned, too, like nowadays with kids, like more awareness around it, I think there's more, um, there's more resources available to kids nowadays, and I think parents are a little more vigilant about it with, um, you know, especially like kind of like not just lumping a kid that's something's wrong with a kid into the ADHD conversation or the ADD conversation. I think that parents are becoming more aware of like, let's, you know, if this, if the kid needs to do play therapy or something like that, let's, let's work with him yeah. and, and get this figured out. So I think there's a lot more awareness around it now. Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. So you get through school, you go to college and you excel in particularly in tennis Yep. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Tell us I, about that. So, in high school, my senior year in Vermont, um, I went to I I did I graduated high school in Vermont in 1993, but my senior year I got mono really badly, so I had to take three months off of school and tennis, and that's kind of when, um, like, you commit to a college in the spring, so the the colleges will look at your for for college tennis. There's a lot of like not, not not it's not so much the school like a football team at the school that they look at it's more of like your record in the in the you know the nat, the uh, USTA tournaments and so I couldn't play any of these tournaments for the for the whole entire middle of the year um, 90, 92, 93. so I made the decision that I wasn't really big on going to college anyways I mean I wanted to be a professional tennis player that was my thing and I knew that. Back in those days, especially, it's it's a little bit different now. Where like the prime of a tennis player is maybe twenty five to thirty. Back then, it was like eighteen to twenty five was like a tennis player's prime. Right. And so I knew that if I went to college, that I was going to miss my prime on the professional tennis tour. So I was kind of not really wanting to go to college anyways. And so I got sick, and my parents and I discussed it, and we decided that I was going to go to Florida for a postgraduate year at a tennis academy, a boarding school in Florida. And so. Um, my schedule there in Florida was literally, I would wake up at seven, go to school from seven thirty until nine thirty, And then from 10 to four or 10 to four thirty, it was, uh, tennis, it was tennis practice, tennis matches, um, off court training, all that kind of stuff. And then we would play tournaments all around the state of Florida on the weekends. And that was, I mean, heaven for me. You know, I was in, I was in Florida. It was warm. I was playing tennis all the time. And that was, um, that was what got me a scholarship to to college for tennis. Okay. I, I ended up at a Division two school in North Carolina, and um, you know this this was like I was committed to tennis. Like there was no there was nothing in my life that was more important to me than tennis. It wasn't girls. It wasn't drinking. It wasn't partying. It wasn't friends. It was it was tennis. I mean, I was dedicated to this, and it, and it wasn't it was all my choice. You know, they like back in those days too, there was a lot of, there's a thing called a tennis parent where, you know, like parents would just like, like Jennifer Capriotti's parents were famous for this, of like driving their kid into the ground playing tennis. And right. there was, Anna Kornikova was another one. And like there was Andre Agassi. He actually, because of his dad, he actually says in his book that he actually hates tennis, but you know, he was so deep in it that he had no other option really. Right. And so for me, um, it was always a tr- like I I will tell you to this day that tennis was my first love. There's no question about it. And so um, when I got to college and all the other kids were partying and drinking all the time, you know I would partake and do the I'd party and drink and smoke weed and all that stuff. But I if I had a tennis match the next day, there was no question I was not drinking. If I had 
you know, during the week for practice, like I was always putting tennis number one. And so through college, um, that was my thing. Like, and I wasn't, you know, and I'll, I'll admit it that I wasn't even really there for the academics. I was there to play tennis. Right. You know, and, and like I, I didn't really I, I picked the college based on the tennis opportunity, not the academic opportunity. And which, was your goal still professional tennis? Um, it was. Yeah. It was from college. Goal. You were hoping. For yeah. That. I was I was hoping to do a couple of years of college, maybe one or two years of college and then jump to the pro tour. Um, but when I was um, my freshman year in college, I'm a huge basketball. Fan. I mean, I love all sports, but I love playing basketball. And so my fraternity had a uh, team in the um, intramural leagues. And so I was playing basketball one night in the winter in the off-season of tennis. And I came down with a, on a rebound on, one, on my right leg. And um, one of the guys on the other team, his knee collided with my knee. And I blew my ACL out. Uh, yeah, my tennis coach wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> oh, but, uh, but, you know, this was like it was my first – this was like – so this would end up being my first break from tennis in almost 15 years, 15 wow. to 20 years. I mean, I started when I was six and I was um, 19 or 20 at this point. So we're looking at like 15, 16 years of basically playing tennis all the time, you know, never going more than a day or two without playing tennis. Right. And so, um, you know, it, 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 it was the first time I really had a chance to like not play tennis and live a little bit of a life. And, and, it, and again, it wasn't like I was deprived of a life in high school. Like I had made these choices voluntarily all throughout my life. But this was the first time now I'm like, I didn't have tennis. And you know, I wasn't going to be playing tennis that spring when the actual season is because I was going to be, um, I had to have surgery in the, in the summer when I went back home to New York, to Vermont. And um, I got a taste of what life was like outside tennis. And it was kind of the first little, idea I had that, you know, maybe, maybe the professional tennis isn't something I want to do because it takes a full on 365, 24 seven commitment. Right, to, right. You know, like I, I may have had all the talent in the world and I could have done it, but like you have to have that whole, you know, the commitment side of it. And I, I kind of started to question whether I had that or not. Were you when thinking I, at the point of tearing the ACL that you would still be able to go back to tennis if you worked on rehab and everything? Yeah, at first I was really, I mean, that was my big, that was my big pain point when I toured the ACL was like, oh my God, my tennis career is in jeopardy. Right. You know, I, th I thought like, this is, this is it. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what if I'm never, what if I'm never able to run around and play tennis like I do? And so, I mean, there was a lot of tears shed over that thought, you know, the idea of not playing tennis again. Right. At that level, yeah, and then and then that's when and then once I you know did the rehab and came back and and started to like kind of like visit the social life a little more, I kind of just I I had I think it was the first time in my life when I was like well maybe if I don't play tennis that's not the wor the worst thing right but I still but I still continued to like I still had I was still committed to to playing tennis in college and after college like there was no question about it like I was going to do something in tennis. Um, it didn't turn out that way, but at that time, that was still my my number one commitment. Right, and so you uh, you finished school. Yep. And did you did what year was that when you uh, tore the so ACL and did you continue competitively? ACL. Yeah, I tore the ACL. So I was a freshman in nineteen ninety four. Was my fr the fall of nineteen ninety four was my freshman year. So that winter, um, it was. It might probably January 95. I think it was probably like after after the holiday break. 
um, when the basketball we were playing basketball. I don't remember the exact date, but it was sometime over the winter that 94-95 year. And then I tore my ACL, so that meant I missed the the, the spring season, which is the big season for tennis in college. And um, I was going to have the surgery, um, you know, when I got home to Vermont that summer. My dad actually was building; he was renovating the house of the New York Giants team doctor. His name is Russ. Yeah, Russ Warren is his name. So he's like, "Yeah, come to my hospital, and we'll, and we'll fix your son up, and we'll, we'll do the surgery on him." And uh, I actually got sta- I got a staph infection in my leg after that surgery. So oh, the rehab took yeah the rehab took a little longer than I expected. But yeah, I mean, I at this point like I was my my thing was like I'm gonna come back a better tennis player. I'm gonna come back stronger. And I did. I can I got faster and stronger, and I got I actually got better at tennis. But again, like I now had this little taste of like I had this idea that like this commitment to tennis is massive if I'm going to do this. Right. And I kind of was like, oh god, you know, it it, it occurred to me that it was kind of nice not having to always be turned on to play tennis, like yeah. always having that a priority. Like, and it was, and again, it didn't it didn't like completely shut off tennis. I still finished college as a tennis player. Uh-huh. Like I still I still played the remaining sophomore, junior, senior year on the tennis team. Right. And it, it was still, so it was still a thing for me. It was still very important to me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, like it was like I, I now had like that little seed was planted that maybe this isn't going to happen. And at this point uh, throughout your college career and playing tennis, what was your mental health like for those years? So the mental, the, the one thing, the first line of, you know, mental health for me was always the social anxiety. Um yeah, again, I can say looking back that there was an under, there was an underlying depression and some and some stories around that which we we can we can get into in a second. But the 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 one that was always really prevalent to me that I was always hyper aware of was the social anxiety. You know, it, it was always there. I always felt really uncomfortable in social situations, and I would and I would go and be there and hang out. But I was always quiet and in the corner, not really talking to anybody, like just kind of withdrawn. If I wasn't drinking, did you have you know, a group so. of friends that you hung out? Yeah, with? yeah, uh, yeah. So the college I went to was really small. I mean, when I think it's bigger now, um, but when I was there, it was maybe like maybe a thousand kids in the whole school, and out of that, I think half were commuters. Okay. So maybe like four or five hundred kids actually lived on campus. So you know, there like in my fraternity, we hung out. Like there was a small group that was in my fraternity, but it was such a small school that basically there was probably like a hundred people that would always party together and like we'd always be at someone's apartment or in the field getting a keg or whatever. So, I mean, it was a really, really small school. Um, and, and there was definitely, I definitely had a, a close group of guys that I would always hang out with. Uh-huh. And tell us, uh, so you graduate from college. Yeah. You, you kind of hang up the tennis racket then, or what happens uh, um, right outside of college? So right outside of college, I, I continue to play tennis. Um, I, I play in a couple um, – they're pro tournaments in a sense that they offer prize money. Um, but, again, they're not like – I'm not – this is no fast track to Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. Right, this right. is like – they're, they're much smaller. I mean the, the prize money would be like something like $5,000 or $2,500 or something like that. Right. Um, so I, I kind of – and they were all local around North Carolina. And so – I tried that, and that's when it really occurred to me that, like, you know, like I, at this point, like my senior year, um, I had really gotten into the social scene, and I liked, I liked partying and chasing girls and doing the thing with my boys and playing golf and going to watch football and all this stuff. So I, the tennis was starting to to move down the priority list, 
of you know things I things that I'm interested in doing in my life. And so, you know, I kind of gave it a uh, maybe a year half-ass effort of playing tournaments, uh-huh. but in reality, it was just like it was more so just not like hanging on to an identity that um, I was scared to let go of is what it, really what it comes down to. Like right. I can back, I can see that. So um, yeah, I ba- so basically for all intents and purposes, yeah, college was over, tennis career was over. Um, I ended up getting a job at a bank in North Carolina in Charlotte, and um, you know that's when. So you'll hear about a lot of athletes that um, high level athletes that they'll have something like a drug addiction or alcoholism get in the like kind of take their sport from them in a sense of like a painkiller addiction or you know a lot of alcohol is a big one so athletes will end up with multiple DUIs and their and their sport will just basically they can't do their sport anymore because they've ruined it with with drinking for me it kind of happened in a reverse order in a sense that like when my tennis career stopped and I chose to stop playing tennis that opened the door for a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs to come in, and the alcoholism and the addiction to start. But it, but being that tennis was such a priority for me, I never allowed that to happen before, before I graduated college. Right, and then, did you slowly gravitate to the to the alcohol and and other drugs, um, or or was it well, like I'm done with tennis? Let's hit the parties. Um, no, I, there was no recognition of it, but I knew, but again, like we're talking about the social anxiety, like I knew that like, it was a very, like I was 23, just graduated college, living right downtown Charlotte. It was me and three other buddies from college in the house. So there was a ton of socializing going on. And I, I knew that like, if I was going to have a good time socializing, I would need to do some drinking because of the social anxiety. So, you know, and again, like looking back, like I knew I was. I knew I felt awkward in social situations, but I didn't recognize that I was covering that up with the drinking. I just thought, like you know, everyone around me is drinking. That's what we do. We go out, we drink, we get drunk, you know, and that's and that's the thing. But looking back, I can definitely see that, like, you know, I was covering up a lot of insecurities and a lot of anxiety with my drinking and doing drugs. Right. Yeah, and so it wasn't as far as the, it was a slow burn for, uh, for quite a while, probably from, so I graduated college, I was 23, a little bit older than normal because I went to that postgraduate year. Um, so I was 20, I think I was 22 when I graduated, I turned 23 that year. And so, um, from like 23 till probably about 20, 27 or 28, um, you know, it was, I was just one of the guys doing what the guys do. Like there was, you know, I was, I was, there was times when I was the one that was the most messed up, the most drunk, the most like people knew if you wanted to have a good time, you called Sam. And so um, I took on I, my identity switched from that of the athlete tennis player to that of the rock star. And it was it was one of those things where, um, you know, I didn't recognize it, but like my identity, like I was in college, I was known as the, 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 the tennis player guy, you know, like, oh, you, you're, on, you're on the tennis team. Like, yeah, that's me. And so I, when that went away, like there was an emptiness there that I didn't, I didn't truly recognize or give weight to, but like I, cause I quickly filled it with like, now I'm the rock star. Now it's like, I, you know, I had to have like, I, I looked at tennis as like my value. You know, that right. was, that was like, that was my value level I could bring like, and I mean, it, it was, it was just, it was basically just an identity that I had that had, and tennis, the reason I was so attached to it was because tennis had literally I was in, I loved it and it, it saved my life. Like it was like, 
you know, it was the thing that I knew that gave me value, that gave me validation, that gave me accolades, that gave me attention because of tennis. Like I was really a small town in Vermont. I was really good at it. I was ranked number one in the state in high school. So I like all this stuff that was tied to tennis for me made me feel really good. Yeah. And so then, so then as tennis fell away, I had to find something else that, um, filled that void. Right. And it was, it was partying, you know? So like I would work, I'd always say like, you know, I, I I work so that I can party. You know, I, I, I live in a house close to downtown, so I'm closer to the bars. Like my life was designed now around my ability to, to have a good time. But were you drinking throughout the days as well? Or at this point, just, just partying in the evenings? So um, I was never one of the 24-7 alcoholic types. I was more of the, the binger. Um, so, and, you know, this was, and for a while at this point in my life, it was like a, you know, it was a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night thing. And then Sunday would probably just, you know, used to recover and then go to work on Monday. So there was no real, like I wasn't, the alcohol was not getting in the way of my life at all at this point. Um, like I said, like we, we all partied really hard. Like there was a lot of partying. Our house was known as the party house. But at the same time, like we all went to work, we all had relationships, we all laughed. Like there was nobody getting DUIs or ending up in jail. There was none of that stuff happening. So it was kind of, I guess, we were kind of just living on the edge. Like we were, we were walking that fine line of, you know, it's about to be a problem, or at least I was. Right. Um, none, none of the other guys in the house ended up having that big of a problem. But would you, for me, you weren't. Would you ahead. say you were an alcoholic at that point in your life? Um. That's a tough one. You know, I, I would say there was definitely alcoholic tendencies and behaviors happening. Yeah. Um, like the real, it, it's it's tough because like a lot of people will say like, oh, if you're if you're if you're drinking to run away from something, you're an alcoholic. And truth be told, I was drinking to cover up my social anxiety. Right. At the time, I was not aware of it. So there was definitely things in play at that time that, w- that I would say, if I'm being completely honest, yes, I was drinking, uh, there was alcoholic tendencies happening at that point. But you're Full drinking, your drinking eventually got worse. Yeah. My drinking got to the point where, you know, I was going into work either still drinking on Monday morning or, you know, having just stopped a couple hours before. Wow. Um, at the same job you were doing? No, this, this is years later. So for, from ages about 23 to 27, um, it, it was fine. And then I ended up getting married at 27 and, and me and my ex-wife, we moved down to Florida, um, to Fort Lauderdale. And again, I was still able to hold down a job and show up at work on Monday and maintain a relationship. And my, my relationship with my parents was still good and my family was still good. And, um, then I got divorced when I was 29 and moved out, moved down to Miami, moved in with a friend of mine in Miami. And that's when, um, for the next three years. So from age 30 to 33, there was a pretty sharp decline in my, um, my functionality as a human being. So this is when, this is when I can say like, I'm just full blown alcoholic at this point. Full, like, you know, I would, I would be doing, I would do way more cocaine than everybody else that was partying. I would drink way more. If everyone else went to bed at 3am, I'd stay up till six drinking. You know, my girlfriend would, start like people around me the people close to me would start to ask questions my family was starting to ask questions and then when i was 33 um it was it was one morning it was um i think it was march january february february like end of february of 2007 and i was i i was driving my car back from a from the parking garage at the bar from the night before 
hadn't slept at all, and I drove through a red light and T-boned another car and got a, my first, or not my first, but my, the, I got a DUI and ended up spending a couple nights in jail in Miami. And that was like, that was the first, that had been, that was the culmination of three years of people asking questions, me, stu- like my work was suffering, my career was suffering, you know, instead of like, I would be missing sales meetings on Monday morning. I was in commercial real estate and I'd be missing meetings on Monday mornings. I would, you know, like there's, there's, it was in Miami. There's a big party scene. Real estate's a big party industry, but I was letting it bleed into missing work. I was missing other, other like commitments. I was a member of a tennis club and, um, there was one time there's a big tennis tournament in Miami, um, on, on Key Biscayne every year. It's one of the, one of the biggest tennis tournaments of the year on the pro tour. And the tennis club that I was a member of, I was one of the top, top four players at this club. And they, we were going to have the morning of the finals of this tournament. We were going to have, we were going to be on TV and it was going to be a doubles match between the top four players at my tennis club. And I ended up going out the night before and getting completely hammered and, um, missing that match. And so, yeah. So, Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's like an example of like, I would miss things like that all the time. Like I would just end up just like drinking and just not maintaining any sort of dignity or integrity or anything like that. So full blown alcoholism at this point. So you mentioned you T-boned a car. Um, Yeah. Did anybody get, first of all, did anybody get hurt? And second of all, you made it sound like that was not necessarily your first DUI. So I got a DUI when I was 18. Um, I blew like a .0001, but I was 18. Um, I had taken like a sip of a sip of Jack Daniels, and it was we were all driving around in my car one night in Vermont, and um, they they again like underage drinking. So if you if I blew anything, it was gotcha. I was drinking underage. The second one um, was in right after college. I got caught speeding home from a bar one night. And, um, they, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they took my car to the pound and, and, um, made me like, they didn't arrest me or anything, but I, I had to drive home with friends. And then the, uh, the third one, the, was in New Jersey. I was living in the, on the Jersey shore after college and, um, the, I was driving down a one-way street. It was super dark, and I couldn't. There was a, a car on one side and a dumpster on the other. And, the, and the, I, I saw the car. I didn't see the dumpster, and I ended up plowing into the the dumpster. And um, I got that was my third third DUI at that point. So this was actually my fourth DUI. Holy smokes! Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so um, this was the one though that um, like the other ones. Um, they they ended up they ended up being dismissed and and um, charges were dropped and so this was my first one where there was actually like other people involved and um, no one was injured in any of these but there was a a lot of property damage in uh-huh. in, in this one in on in, in Florida and so uh-huh. they took I went to jail and then um, this was this ended up also being my first trip to rehab shortly after this okay. Hey, before so, we get into to rehab, curious, um, you mentioned uh, a wife and then she was an ex-wife and it sounded like yeah. you were married maybe a few years and I'm wondering if, was it the booze and the partying that, that was no. kind of the demise of the marriage? No, it was, um, it, so yeah, I was married from um, age 27 to 29 and it wasn't, the, the boo- we partied a lot together, we had a lot of friends that partied together, we, um, it was kind of, that was our lifestyle. 
the the I wouldn't I would not equate the divorce to the booze and the drugs. It was more so that um, when we moved to Florida, um, we we so we were living in North Carolina together. We met in North Carolina. She was from Florida. We moved down to Florida, and uh, we didn't have our our friends around. We didn't have our other lives around, and it. And I'll be completely honest here. Like I just I realized that it wasn't it wasn't my place to be married to her anymore. Um, I didn't have the feelings. I didn't have. I didn't want to be in that relationship. The relationship was deteriorating um, pretty much weekly. Um, it was getting much and much worse. I was getting I was getting unhappier and unhappier. And so I just made the decision that um, I'm this is not going in the direction I want to go. Um, and I kind of just had to say, I made a mistake. I'm sorry, like, but this isn't working and it's, and we need to get a divorce. Right. Right. So I, you know, I, there, there wasn't, there wasn't much of the, it wasn't like I was, you know, extramarital affairs or anything like that. It was just that, um, it wasn't my place to be married to her anymore. Right. So, uh, let's get back to your, your fourth DUI, you T-bone a car, nobody gets hurt, but you do some jail time and then went to rehab. Yeah, the jail time. I mean, when I say jail time, it was it was like overnight. Okay. Um, they they took me to Miami J Miami County Jail, and then um, my girlfriend picked me up at like five in the morning the next day, and um, we I met with a lawyer. The I think that was a, that was like a Sunday. So I met with a lawyer um, shortly thereafter, and he said probably a good idea if you you know go away for twenty eight days to you know make a gesture to the courts that say like, listen, I understand this is a problem. I'm trying to do something about it. And so I, at this point, I didn't really have any designs on being sober. I didn't really think I had a problem. Um, I wasn't really connecting any dots or anything. I just, I just thought that, you know what, like I had just gotten divorced a couple of years ago. I was blowing off some steam that, you know, it was just a bad weekend here and there, just some bad luck. Like, you know, once I settle down, like once I get everything settled down, then, you know, I'll, I have no problem being able to control my, my drinking. But I did look at the rehab as a nice little timeout. You know, I felt I felt the the speed of the world around me. I felt like the chaos that I had created. I, I felt that, um, and and you know, a lot of and then there was a lot of. I was starting to feel the kind of. I was starting to notice um, some isolation and some with some depression like symptoms coming in. Um, I and again, I didn't really have the language or the knowledge at the time to classify them as that, but I definitely felt. Um, you know, like with, with that kind of behavior, with that kind of drinking and, and like, you know, going, going AWOL and missing for, for three days at a time and not calling your family or your girlfriend, there's a lot of uh, mental noise after something like that. Right, right. And so, um, you know, like, and, and of course, alcohol is a depressant too. So enough of that over time, your central nervous system is, is going to get depressed a little bit. So I was kind of dealing with like the front end of some depression stuff. But again, like I just chalked it up as like, you know what, I, I just need a little time. I just need to regroup. I need, I'll go to rehab. This will be awesome. I'll, I'll just go to regroup and kind of like get back in shape and, and do all these things. And then when I come out, it'll be fine. My girlfriend and I will live happily ever after doing whatever we do. And it was a full month in rehab? Uh, 20, 27 days. Okay. So um, I went, I, I was going to go for 28 days. That's so 28 days. The, the thing about 28 days is it's, everyone says go to rehab for 28 days. The reason it's 28 days is because it, insurance companies will pay for 28 days, ah, right. but, but most rehabs will insist on 30, 60 or 90. Um, but I was dead set that there was a wedding that my girlfriend and I were supposed to go to, um, on like the 28th day that I was supposed to be in rehab. So, um, I, 
you know, the, the, the facilities, the way they operate is like, listen, like you're here, but there's no, the doors aren't locked. You can leave anytime you want. And so I basically talked my way out of the rehab on the 27th day to go to this wedding with my girlfriend. To party? No, oh, not okay. to party. All right, no, okay. no, no, no. I know everyone says that, but no. <laughs> I, actually, I actually, in my time there, I actually said, like, you know what? I think I'm going to actually kind of see, see how far I can take this sobriety thing. And, and so um, I got out of rehab on, I think it must have been like a Friday, and the wedding was on Saturday. And when I went to that wedding all that social anxiety that I had been operating over or drinking over was there. And I was, com- I was so uncomfortable. I mean, I, I just remember like sitting in a, at a table, just like thinking that the world's going a thousand miles an hour and people wanted me to dance. And I was like, Oh no, I can't do that. So it was at a golf course. And I remember like having to take multiple walks out to the golf course just to like breathe and get some fresh air. So like I was now acutely aware that without alcohol, socializing is not going to happen. Right. And at this point I had grown to love socializing. So I, I had to make the decision. I said, okay, so I'll, I'll go, I'll go a couple weeks sober here, but you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be drinking again in a few weeks, but I'll be okay because I've learned a lot of stuff and I know that, you know, I know what my problems were. And so now I can, I can go back and I can drink successfully. And did it last two weeks? I, I was sober for two more weeks and then started drinking again and that went it went pretty well. I mean I was I was kind of I was pretty mindful of it. I was drinking mindfully, if that's such a thing. Um for and your alcohol. girlfriend was okay with it? Yeah, she I mean she was she was on board. She's like, you know what, like I don't she's like, I don't want you to be sober forever. I, I enjoy going out and having drinks and glasses of wine with you, but I just don't want you to be the guy that goes missing for four days and does, you know, three eight balls on a weekend. I want you to be the, the guy that you were when I first met you. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I want too. So I, I was under the impression that after this little trip to rehab, that was what was going to happen. You know, completely unaware of how alcoholism works and how, um, my, how I react to alcohol. And, and again, not connecting the dots at all, not taking any ownership or responsibility for any of the stuff, the four DUIs or, or whatever else, like not, not even acknowledging that there might be a problem here, just thinking that like, oh, I just had a bad stretch. Like I'll get it back in line. So and the twenty-eight days in rehab didn't convince you either, huh? No, I uh, when I was in rehab, I I was like so. Usually, when you go around a group in rehab, everyone's like, you know, I'm 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 Fred, I'm an alcoholic. I'm Lee, I'm an alcoholic. I'm Chris, I'm an alcoholic. When it got to me, I would never say I'm an alcoholic because yeah. I honestly, I honestly didn't believe it. Yeah. I was like, I'm not an alcoholic. Like I don't. And the thing about it was, is one of the hardest things for me to accept was that. Through college, and even after college for a little bit, like I was always able to control it, like and because of tennis, like I was always able to say, you know, I'm not going to get too wasted. I don't get too wasted because I have tennis to 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 worry about. Like, so I had this thing in the back of my head that well, I I controlled it for so long, basically from when I started drinking at 18, 19 until 23, 24. Those five years, like I was in control of everything. And so I, I, my thinking was like, well, I can get back to that. I can do that again. And the way alcohol works is one of the analogies they use in recovery is, you know, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never be a cucumber again. Right. You know, you can't go back. And that's the way the alcoholic brain works. Like once you, once that flip, that switch gets flipped to the alcoholic, there's no going back to drinking normally because you have that, that chemical in your brain now and you have the alcoholic brain 
the disease has kicked in. And when an alcoholic or an addict, anything, when they're active in their addiction, you know, the, the whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs gets reshuffled and the drug or the alcohol becomes the number one priority above food, above sex, above community, above water. Like the alcoholic brain, the addict brain will say, if we don't get our alcohol or our drugs, we will die. Right. And so that's what drives most of addiction and alcoholism is that subconscious survival mode is now dependent upon getting that, that fix, that drug. Wow. Yeah. So um, after the two weeks or two, three weeks, whatever it was that I was sober after rehab, I drank a couple weekends and it, and it was, it was, it was like, it was like it used to be where I was like in control, had some drinks, got drunk, laughed a lot, whatever, but there was no like real quote unquote alcoholic behavior. Um, and that lasted for about two more weeks. And then pretty shortly after that, the alcoholic behavior started to creep back in and I was, you know, Again, not calling my family, not calling my girlfriend, going missing for three or four days, um, doing a ton of drugs, ending up on ending up in South Beach and hotel rooms, and just doing all kinds of you know alcoholic stuff. Yeah, when and you so, when you say you're you're not showing up for three days, what's going on there? Like you're drinking all night, you wake up in some stranger's house or a hotel, or yeah, and um, you start drinking again. Is it like a bas- three day bender? Bas- yeah, it's basically nonstop drinking. Right. It's, uh, I would, I mean, I would go anywhere from, like I said, when I, like, I would go anywhere from like a weekend to five days of just like no sleep, just drinking, doing drugs with whoever was there. If it was strangers, I would do it with strangers. If it was friends, I would do it with friends. Um, it, it was kind of one of those things. It's like a, a runaway freight train. Like if you, if I got started, there was no stopping. And this is the, this is another thing about the this this resistance conversation that I had to being an alcoholic was that I always said, like, if I, when I don't drink, like I have no problem not picking up a drink. Like I can sit, I can have alcohol in my house. I can go to a bar. I can go to a restaurant. I can go to a party with alcohol all around and be completely fine, not drinking at all. You know, I I would feel awkward in that social anxiety would be there, but I wouldn't turn into an alcoholic. You know, I, I wouldn't feel the need to pick up the drink. But then once I did pick up that one drink and had that one sip or that one line of cocaine or whatever it was, then that's when all bets are off. Right. That's when that's when I'm liable to go three, four, five days, you know, just straight drinking, no sleep, and just doing a ton of drugs. So And then after three to five days or so you'd show back up to your girlfriend and, and she'd take you right back in? Well, we, I mean, we never broke up, you know, but she was always, she would be, <clears throat> she would be calling. At first she was like, okay, whatever. Like I know what he's doing. He'll be back. And then after a while, after about uh, six months or a year of it, it, it gets pretty old. And so, um, you know, I would basically go for three or four or five days and then sleep for a day and then, you know, wake up and, st- and apologize to everybody and say, Hey, I'm sorry. You know, that won't happen again. And then I, I would be good for <clears throat> three weeks or a month or maybe even two months. And then it would happen again, <clears throat> and then I would same cycle. The same the cycle the cycle went on for basically three years. Wow. From age thirty to thirty three, and then and, you know, and it, it actually and this is you know thirty three. I I tagged thirty three because that's when that's when I, that's when things really really started to like really fall apart for me. Were you still holding down a job at this point? Yeah, I was. I was still in commercial real estate. Um, okay. I would I would be in commercial real estate. Um, for another four years. Right. Um, you know, when I say, and 
in the business and being successful in the business, two very different things. Yeah, um, right. I was not I was not successful, but I was, you know, I was successful enough that um, I was able to just like, I mean, a commercial real estate is a very lucrative career. Like, if you're good at it, and I was good at it for a while, like you you should be very successful at it. Right. I was I was basically paycheck to paycheck in commercial real estate, which should never happen. Yeah. But being the the lifestyle I had and the being an alcoholic, like that's, that's, that's what was happening. So, um, yeah, that, so the girlfriend after, after I, after that rehab and then falling back off the wagon and going back into that, that behavior, um, the girlfriend was finally like, you know what? I can't, I can't do this. Like, I love you, but I, I can't do this to myself. I can't let you do this to me and I can't watch you do this to yourself. You know, she, and she left. And now this is the point when, full on 100% deep, dark depression comes, you know, this, this is when I was like, uh, for the next three months or four months, I was like, you know, crying all the time, unable to leave my house, unable to get out of bed. Um, if I wasn't drinking or doing drugs, I was, I was trying to sleep. I couldn't watch TV because I was too depressed. It would just trigger too many memories. Like it was, it was my first real bout with, severe depression and you weren't weren't leaving your place at all i mean maybe to go like get some fast food and come back and yeah. i would go get i would go get a bunch of alcohol and, and maybe like five double cheeseburgers and and then just like go back in and lock the doors pull the blinds and just sit there and drink and and just do whatever with whoever would come by mostly drug dealers that would come by and and um you know i was just trying i was just doing everything i could not to feel reality so that was either getting really drunk and really high or sleeping yeah and, you know, and that, and that was like, and I, and I can, I can say for, I can, there, there were times when I had that behavior before, but this was the first time that I actually ever was like cognizant and recognized that I was using alcohol and drugs to run away from something. Right. Right. I, and this, the, and so that was, that was pretty scary for me. And so I, that ended with another trip to rehab in the fall of that year. How did uh, how did you end up in rehab? And had you reached out to anybody to let them know what a terrible situation you were in? I mean, my family all knew how heartbroken I was and how depressed I was, and they were reaching out. And my dad, my dad, um, I had a family member that had been to a really good rehab in Utah, Cirque Lodge, and so he he had, he and my dad had been in conversation. And my dad had at the end of this, so this was like from. April, May to uh, basically October, I was in this downward spiral. And, um, you know, I would go to work maybe for a couple days here and there, but then it would just be, it was too much. Like society and the world was too much. And I would, you know, I had some therapy in there. Like I would go to therapy appointments and talk and I would go visit my dad in North Carolina or California, wherever he was at the time. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just, it really is a blur to me because it was just a real either sleeping or drunk or just so, I mean, I just remembered like darkness, like figurative and literal darkness in my life. Right. And, um, so at the end of the, at the end of these, over the, over this time, you know, my, my family would call me and my sisters would call me and just say, Hey, we need you to stop. Like, we love you. Like, how can we help you through this? And go to AA, go to a meeting, do something. And, you know, I would try all these things and like, it was just, the, the depression was too much. It was, it was, the depression was winning. And, um, you know, and I just, I, I succumbed to it. And so finally at the end of the, uh, the summer was over and in the fall, I, uh, my dad had called me up and said, Hey, listen, I, I lined up this, this spot for you in this rehab. Um, you know, whenever you're ready, 
um, it's there for you. So just all you have to do is call them and say, I'll, I'll be there in a couple of days. And though, and that was, and at that point I had kind of realized like that this level of existence was not acceptable. Um, and so I was like, you know, I didn't necessarily want to stop drinking or using drugs, but I didn't want to feel like I was feeling anymore. Not even close. Right. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted, what I wanted to do really was I wanted to go away to this rehab and I agreed to two months this time. I wanted to go away to this rehab, fix, fix myself, get better, get the depression gone, like get a handle on my drinking, come back to Miami, reunite with my girlfriend. And then we would have to after that was my plan. Right. Right. Um, so, so how long since uh, from the point your dad gave you the phone number until the time you actually picked up the phone and said I'm coming out to rehab? Uh, it was a couple of days. Really? Okay. It wasn't. It wasn't long. I was. I was ready. I was. I, I was done. Like yeah. I was. I was just tired. I was in pain. I knew that. Like I just. Like there was. There was no solution if I continued to do what I was doing. Pain from and, the depression. Pain from the depression. Yeah. Physical pain from being. You know, drinking for five days at a time and then sleeping like not working out like any kind of like the emotional and physical pain all wrapped up into one yeah and um so i went to this rehab in utah for two months and and the, the depression lifted um i started to take i took um i think it was lexapro but um it, it really helped me to like get, just getting out of miami and being in utah and being out there and away from everything and just like knowing that I was actually taking steps to kind of fix the chaos, the wreckage, really helped me to like that depression lifted. Mm-hmm. And so, and also, I mean, I stopped drinking too. So um, for two months, and then I went back to Miami thinking I was going to call up my girlfriend and she was going to be like, oh my God, you're better. Let's, let's live happily ever after. And um, I called her, but she didn't answer. And then I ran into her on the street one day and she, her words were, that ship has sailed. Wow. <laughs> and so... Yeah, so I immediately I was very sad and I got sick to my stomach. But after the conversation, I felt I felt this immense relief that I don't have to be sober anymore. Like my whole so this my I was committed to sobriety as long as I got the girl back, right? So the girl didn't come back, and so therefore I had no reason to be sober anymore because you know like that was my reason was to get the girl back, and so I literally walked. Um, from my house to a bar that afternoon and for the next this was now to this is end of 2007 so from 2000 this is 2008 let's call it because it was like December of 2007 when I got back from rehab so 2008 until 2010 was just maybe maybe three months of sobriety here 30 days there and it was just it was a it was not a very um, you know positive existence and did your depression come back as well no, not really. Um, I, I didn't really give it a chance. Um, right. I, I, you know, it may have been there. It was, it was actually, it was definitely there. Low level buzz in the background, kind yeah. of thing. Um, but I wasn't really facing anything. I was, you know, like self medicating, self medicating, going through girlfriends like they were socks, and like just like, just, I mean, always moving apartments because I would like trash one apartment and I would get a new apartment. I, I, so in two thousand nine, I finally left Miami and went to North Carolina back to North Carolina. Um, and things got worse there. And this, like, this is like, things got really bad in North Carolina to the point where, um, when I first went back to North Carolina, I found out I had cancer in my mouth. Oh, you're and kidding. so, yeah, so I had a, I, I had surgery to remove that. There was no chemo or anything like that. I had surgery to remove the cancer. They didn't know why I got it. 
I looked at that as like a sign of like, well, I should just party more because I survived cancer to the point where that led to me falling off a balcony 35 feet after a, uh, after a football game one Sunday oh. landing. Yeah. I landed on on the pavement. It was the second story of a bar and I landed on the pavement down below. Um, woke up in the trauma unit of the hospital. Uh, I missed my, my grandma, my grandmother had had a stroke the, the Friday before I was supposed to fly out to Vermont that Monday morning, but I was in the hospital and I couldn't fly out. So I missed my grandmother's funeral because of that. Um, and so this went on, this, this went on in this level of disaster for until June of 2010. What kind of injuries did you have? Uh, I chipped my elbow. That's about it. That's it. Yeah. Walked out of the hospital three days later. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, I mean, extremely lucky on that front. Um, you know, and like, and again, I looked at that as, uh, you know, I, I kind of became a local celebrity because of that, because I was, they're like, oh, you're the guy that fell off the epicenter, which is the place I fell off of. And, and so I was like doing shots. Everyone wanted to buy me shots. Cause like, I was the guy that fell off the epicenter, like, let's do shots. And so I was like, I was just like, the insanity of my thinking is clear now, but at the time, you know, like getting cancer in your mouth and falling off a balcony and, you know. Get it, I got MRSA in my elbow from that fall. And it's like all these things point to like you should probably not be drinking. But for me, right. this was like more of like I looked at it as like I'm indestructible. Like let's party harder. And and the booze continued and the heavy drugs too? Yeah, booze and heavy drugs continued um, until June of 2010. And then I went to a rehab in Atlanta. And I stayed there for four months. I, w- I was pretty su- – I was – I knew at this point that like there was something severely wrong with my drinking and the behavior associated with it. And I, and I knew that I probably was going to be better off if I didn't drink for the rest of my life. So at this point. what was it that got you to go to rehab after, after all of that? Um, it was kind of one of those things, like just a, a, a confluence of pain, just like I, I, I was in pain emotionally, physically, um, Again, family breathing down my neck, girlfriends leaving me, friends alienating me. Um, just really just like my life was nothing. Like I, my life was hell. So how did it go from, I don't know if you can explain this, but like you were just talking about being kind of the, the rock star, right? The guy who everybody's buying shots for. You were known for falling off the balcony and partying hard. And then all of a sudden you're talking about depression and knowing it has to stop. Was there a, like a turning point that you could point to to say, this is it, like I'm done with this lifestyle, I need rehab again? Was it falling into another depression? Yeah, it was more so just like people, just like it was a combination of internal stuff. Like when you're an alcoholic and you're in that way of life and you're in that downward spiral, there's like, there's an internal knowing that something's not right. But at the same time, as an alcoholic, you don't want to admit it because, again, the disease is telling you that, like, if you stop drinking, like, what's your life going to look like? You're going to be a loser. Right. And so when, when, when the, the knowledge and all the recognition of the pain becomes too much, that's when, a lot of, like, that's when I would always run to rehab. I would always say all right, I need, I need to like regroup here and like show some people that I'm willing to do something about this. And, and you know, the, this one, this one now in 2010, like this is the point when I'm like, I need to do this for me because I, I probably am going to die if I continue along this road. You so know, you it, felt it, like this was really going to be like, you were going to go, 
I know you mentioned earlier going to rehab, going, eh, I'm not even an alcoholic. I'll just, you know, do yeah. my 28 days and drink a yep. little bit for a couple weeks and, and then yeah, hit so hard was, again. Yeah. But this yeah. time you were like, no, two months and I'm done. Like, this is, this is not, I can't live this way. Yeah, so the, that, that's the, the first rehab I was like, okay, I'll go. It's a nice little time out, but I'm not an alcoholic. The second rehab was like, okay, I probably have a problem with alcohol. I need to go get it figured out and I can come back and resume my life. This third one was like, okay, so I realized that alcohol is causing me major problems in my life. Um, I, need to, I need to figure out how I can live without drinking. Right, right. So you and took so that I, two I, months pretty seriously. I was there for four months, actually. Oh, four months. Awesome. Yeah, four months in this one in Atlanta. Yeah, and I took I took it very seriously. Um, you know, and it was like I made a lot of changes, and I and I, I actually moved back to South Florida, to Delray Beach. Um, Delray Beach is known as one of the recovery capitals of the United States. Um, just a ton of uh, good AA groups and and sober livings and all kinds of stuff there. And so um, I moved there after that rehab, fully intending to stay sober, like. And I, and, but the thing that there was one thing that, that didn't click was that I needed to like do work to stay sober. Right. right. So, um, I stayed sober all told that time for, I think 10 months, nine months, it was nine months. It was, so I remember I, I was looking at a year. I was like, okay, maybe in a year I'll drink. Um, as the time went on, because I wasn't going to meetings, I wasn't working with a sponsor. I wasn't doing the steps. I wasn't hanging out with people that are sober. I was, you know, I was still going to the bars with my girlfriend at the time. I was still hanging out with people that were drinking. Like I wasn't doing anything to support my sober life except just like by for, sheer, sheer force of willpower trying to stay sober, which doesn't work. I mean, it, it can work for a certain amount of time, but in the long run, you have to do the work to figure Like for me, it was the depression and the anxiety were the underlying reasons why I always drank. You know, insecurities and feeling less than and, and like all the, the stories that I had developed when I was a child. And did they address those in the rehab? They addressed the depression. Um, the depression gets addressed. and Like significantly the, addressed? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. You, you, I mean, significantly addressed to the point that the patient is willing to address it. Right. You know, like it's, it's talked about a lot. Yeah, you know rehabs like they all they all claim dual diagnosis, which is they diagnose the addiction plus the underlying issues. Yeah, so um, I wouldn't say they. I, I wasn't willing, nor did I see the importance of, nor did I even like acknowledge the fact that there was trauma involved in my depression. Mm-hmm. And, and so, like the I would talk about my depression, but like yeah, like I know what depression is, and I. And it's, you know, when I get heartbroken, I get depressed. I wouldn't, there, there, that was the extent of my doing the work on is, it. Is there therapy around your depression while you're there? And, and I don't, I don't even know, like, I would imagine you're working with addiction specialists and I don't even know if they are therapists or, or how that works. Yeah, there's both. They, okay. they, they, they cover all the bases. Great. Uh, yeah. And, um, so you, you, but again, like, you know, a therapist can, can help you, but a therapist can't really force you to see what you're not willing to look at. No, for sure. Yeah, you've yeah. got to do the work and be willing to do the work as yeah, well. Yeah, you you got to be willing to dig. Yeah. Like, like it's real easy to look at depression and, and look at that immediate – basically, you can look at like the immediate symptom of the depression, like heartbreak. Yeah. Or loss of a job. But like, okay, but like what's – like when – so – when I really healed my depression was when I was able to look past all the symptoms and at the root causes of it. Uh-huh. 
but I was never, I was never, I, I mean, I was, I, I did think that the drinking was the major problem. Like I thought like once drinking goes, once, once I get a handle on my drinking, the depression will, will go away. Right. And you're saying really the drinking was just a symptom of the depression. The drinking was a symptom of the social anxiety for sure. Right. Um, the depression that one time, that, that, that one time in 2007 when my girlfriend left and I was in that deep, dark depression, that was, that was a definite like commingling of depression and addiction there. Yeah. The other times I, I really, I really believe that it was, I was, I was just because I was so uncomfortable with myself that's why I would drink. So just the anxiety. And when you say you had to dig for the root cause, do you have a root cause now that you believe? In, the... From the depression? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I've uh, I have I've dug that one out. <laughs> Thankfully. Is um, that anything you want to share? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'll fast forward a little bit. Um, so 2010, that four months in rehab, that 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 worked for about nine months. Um, and then the ne- then I went through a year of in and out of sobriety, and then finally in hold 2000- on one second, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but after nine months of sobriety, what yeah. is it that makes you pick up a drink? Looks like fun, like it's it's more fun. It's it's more fun to drink, and you know after nine months you're like, oh, I've got this. Like I figured it out. Like, and you I'm make good. a conscious decision. Okay, yeah. I know I've been sober for nine months. I'm gonna yeah. have a drink. And I'm gonna go hard at it, or I'm just gonna have no, a beer and, gonna be, and I'll be fine. I'll be real. I'll, no, because I mean, at this point, I'm aware. Like, I have the tendency to get out of hand when I drink. So, right. What else? What I do now is like, I'm just gonna drink, but I'm gonna be a, you know, I'm gonna be responsible about it. And the thing is, is that works for one, two, three, five times. Like, it it's a, it goes well. And that's the worst thing that can ever happen is because then you're like, oh, look, it did work. Yeah. And then you let your guard down, and the next time is another DUI. Right, right. Another, another three nights in jail. And so um, that was my pattern for, uh, pro- for the next two years. Um, and I, did have a, I had another 11 months of sobriety in there, um, um, 2011, 2012. And then 2012, in September 2012, um, I went to a football game in North Carolina again, and a buddy of mine offered me a beer. And I, again, I hadn't been to a meeting in a while. I hadn't done any of the work. I hadn't, I, I just, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten to any of the root cause of anything. I was just, again, just staying sober by sheer force of will. And so, um, guy offered me a drink. I said, yes. Uh, it, weekend went well. I'm like, cool, I'm fixed. Um, then after that, for the next two months, was a complete wreck of of life. Like I ended up in, I stayed actually was in jail for a week, eight nights in jail at one point for another DUI. Uh, my dog was in the car when I got the DUI, so he went to the pound. Oh. Um, I, my drug dealer had broken into my house for um, over sixty bucks and stolen a brand new TV I just got, sixty inches. Um, I, I was my neighbors woke me up on my front lawn a few times. I was in the hospital. Oh and then God. finally, yeah, and then finally, uh, November 21st, 2012, I was sitting at my kitchen table, um, had a bottle of Captain Morgan's in front of me, big pile of cocaine. Everyone had just left. It was about 4 a.m. And I just said, I can't do this anymore at that moment. And I don't, I don't know why, how, I, c- I couldn't tell you any reasoning behind it. I don't know. But I just know, like, I just backed away from the table and I said, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm done. And that was it. That was the last time I've even thought about having a drink or a drug or anything. And, um, I called up 911 at that moment and said, I'm having suicidal thoughts. We, you know, I need you to take me to the psych ward. 
And I, I wasn't actually having suicidal thoughts, but I knew that I had done this before and I knew that the only way they would actually take me in was if I told them I was having the, the suicidal thoughts. Right. So, but I knew, but what I did know is that I was way, I was, too, I was fear, so much fear of the next day that I knew that the only way I could escape the responsibility of the next day or like just the, I knew what I needed to do was like, I needed to like remove myself from society and, I, and fix this. I think that was a smart move, even though you weren't suicidal. Yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advertise to people. Yeah. Just call nine one one and tell them this, you know, but you yeah. were on the verge of death. You yeah. Know? I, I mean, mean, you were on the verge of, of dying. It sounds yeah. like. I knew I needed to be taken in. I knew that because I knew I knew that this was the the one thing that I needed to do. And I needed to go and and get somewhere safe in a hurry. And, and I think <clears throat> it also speaks kind of to our mental health system, right? You knew if you didn't say that, they probably would have said, "Ah, you'll be all right. Call your doc tomorrow or something." Yep. And, exactly. and you didn't didn't know if you'd be around the next day to do that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I spent, I spent seven, seven days in the psych ward in North Carolina, and then I went to a rehab in Michigan. Went to, well, I, went, I went back to the same rehab in Utah that I went to in 2007 uh, just because I knew it was – like I knew even though it didn't work for me in 2007 or I didn't work for it in 2007, I knew it was the best care that I could get. So I went back there, and then I spent um, three months in sober living in Salt Lake City, and then I went to San Francisco. And – um, so getting to the question you asked about the root cause of the depression, <clears throat> when I was, uh, in 2017, so I was almost five years sober at this point. Um, I was in San Francisco. I had a great job as a personal trainer. I was making a bunch of money. I had a great girlfriend. I was driving a nice truck. I had an apartment in a nice area of the city. Um, and I was miserable and I'm like confused. I'm like, I'm like, why? Like I, I, I'm five years sober. I have all these great things. Like what's going on? Like why, why do I feel like this? And so I made up, I was so confused by it that I made up that it was the weather in San Francisco that was causing me these problems. Cause the weather in San Francisco is never nice. <laughs> and so, and so, um, it's always like 55 and gloomy, you know, most of the year. So I was like, I need to go somewhere where it's, it's nice and sunny and there's summer and so I decided to move to Denver. And I moved to Denver, and the girlfriend left me. My career took a hit, and now I'm in Denver, and I'm still miserable. And so I'm getting to the, to the point now where I'm like, this is an internal thing. So, I, so I, I, I figured out that I was always running from stuff. And when, so you, I, when you say you were miserable, you're not saying clinically depressed again, just miserable, not enjoying things. I mean, it's definitely different. I, or were you saying you were going through depression I, again? Yeah, I was I was pretty depressed. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was definitely um, really really down, especially when the girlfriend left again. So right. again, like this this depression, I chalk up as like the girl. Like I'll get I'll go back. So I moved back to California two months after moving to Denver. I kind of resurrect my career in California, and I get the girlfriend back, and the depression lifts. And so I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like I learned my lesson there. Right. And so, right. Um, so another two years goes by, and it's now 2019. And the girlfriend breaks up with me again. Um, this time is like the, like that that move I made in 2017 caused a lot of damage, and you know I I, t I fully acknowledge my role in the situation. But we we tried to work it out for two more years, and you know I was putting in the effort. I wanted it to work, but she she just couldn't really get over that, and so she she was unhappy, and she said you know I, I can't do this with you anymore, and so that here comes the depression again, and this is like this is like one of those like 
back in 2007 when the girlfriend left me and the like not leaving the house, not getting out of bed, um, sleeping whenever I can, barely making it to work, canceling on clients, like all these like serious depression. I mean, I, and I didn't, I, there was no drinking. I didn't drink or do drugs again. There's none of that. Were you getting therapy but, or seeing a doctor? Yeah, or I, was, meds? Yeah, I was going, yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, I, I had a really good therapist. Um, and I would, you know, I would barely make it to his office some days. And there, there was one point when I, I, I couldn't sleep because of the depression. So I was just, you know, that when it gets so bad that you're so tired that yeah. you just can't sleep, like I was deep in depression at this point. And so I, I finally got up the energy. I was, I was a part of this mastermind, um, a, a group of guys, and we were meeting in L.A. in uh, late February. And it had been about two months since the girlfriend left. And I went down to L.A. and I, I told the guys when I got there, I was like, listen, guys, like my heart is shattered right now. I do not want to be here. I came because I, I don't want to give in to this depression that I'm feeling. But, I mean, it was real. And so one of the, one of the, one of the coaches at this retreat, he looked at me and I told him the story about how, like, I always end up here. I always end up heartbroken and depressed. This all, I I think I said, this always happens to me. And he's like, well, stop yourself right there. He's like, you you have to stop looking at why this always happens to you and what it is, what is it about you that you allow this to keep happening to you? And right then I was like, oh. Like woof, <laughs> you know. Like I'm on my I'm on my knees here, and this guy just gives me a kick to the gut. <laughs> and, but, but in reality, I mean, it was like exactly what I needed to hear. There's no question about it. And so from that moment on, like I went back home and I sat with my therapist, and I was like, why? Like what? Where? Where? What is the programming that I have in me that is that like basically predisposes me to this situation? And so I dug and I dug and I dug and I dug and I got to the point where, so when I was a kid. You know, I had a legitimate program installed in me and a story that, that developed from it. Core, this is a core belief thing, zero to seven-year-old core belief. I need to be saved. Because as a kid, zero to actually like 15 or 16, you know, when the asthma and the food allergies were really bad and I didn't have a way to get to the hospital myself, like I legitimately had it to be saved. Like if, if I had an asthma attack at two in the morning on January 15th and you know, I'm nine years old. Right. My mom has to rush me to the hospital and save me. Yeah. So I had this, I had never let go of that programming, that story. And so basically every situation that I ever got to in my life, job, uh, with family, with girlfriends, with friends, my underlying reason for being in those relationships was to get saved. Right. I was right. always looking for, like, if, so my thing was, if this, like this girlfriend, for example, I use this example because it's, it's the one that got the, the catalyst. You know, I said, I love you. Like, and I meant it. Like I was, I had, I, it was my first time I've ever been in love sober. It was my first, like, I can probably say it was like the, the most real love I've ever experienced. And I said to her, I love you. But like, what I didn't recognize is that like behind that love, I love you was like, okay, that means that we're now signing a contract where now I am, re I am now your responsibility. Right. Like you have, you have to save me now. I, I expect you to save me. And that could be financially, that could be emotionally, that could be physically with sex with, I mean, whatever you name it. Like my underlying programming tells me or t like drives me to look for saving in other people. And so obviously that's going to end with major disappointment for me. And, and when I don't get saved now, like I'm literally, it's a fate worse than death for me. Right. And that, and that leads to my depression. 
So I had, this is 2019. And so normally these depressive episodes for me last like three years. Like that's my pattern. And this one, that guy asked me that question about three months in and I got to work on this digging and two months later I was out of it. So that's awesome. Um, it's interesting too, because, you know, like I'm, I still go to a men's support group for depression and anxiety. And we always talk about, it's so important to do the work. And sometimes people are like, what, is, what does it even mean the work? And like, that's a perfect example. Like yeah. somebody said something to you, it really made sense to you. And then you, you decided I'm going to talk to my therapist about this and I'm going to dig deep into what this might mean and why this might be happening. And you, you did a lot of digging and you figured it out because you put that time and effort into it. Yeah, it was one of those things where I'm just like, I, I, I mean, I'm 43 years old at this point. I'm like, I, I can't keep experiencing this. Like, I need to get down to the bottom of why this is. And, and, to, and to get to the, like, to get past the symptoms, like, to get past the, you know, hard to get out of bed. It's like, I'm not working out. I'm not eating well. I'm losing weight. Like, those are the symptoms of it. To get past all that stuff. And get that like go way back to the to the root. My gosh, is it freeing? And this is not that long ago. You said 2019. Yeah, 2019. So it's almost about two years ago. Right. Um, and how many years sober now? Eight. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. I, I certainly hope that you're able to keep the sobriety and. Yeah, there's no question about that for me. Um, you know, it's one of those things, like, people always ask me, like, because I, I still go out to watch football on Saturdays and go out with my friends dancing and all that stuff. And I'm just like, you know, for me, like, that the pain of what I was experiencing and, and the pain of what I was causing people is so alive in me and real that there's just, like, I can honestly say there's no chance I will ever drink again. Yeah, well, I hope that's the case. Um, you know, it's hard for me to know the feeling, but the, the way you described it to me, even when you went back to drinking after being sober, it sounded like, like it was just a decision, like, you know what, I, I'm kind of bored and I want to do this again. It wasn't like, oh my God, I need a drink. I need a drink. Right. No. And, and if you're able to now like realistically look back and, and be like, holy shit, I fell off of a balcony I've got four or five DUIs. I T-boned a car, could have killed somebody. Like, no, nah, it, it's just not worth it. It's, and those are all, like, huge data points. But, like, you know, like, one of the things that, like, is the most important thing anybody can ever do when they're getting sober is build a life they love. Right. Like, I know for a fact, like, I have an amazing life right now. I live in Austin, Texas. I have a job that I love. I'm I'm legitimately living in my purpose and my passion. I, I'm getting opportunities like to be on this show. Like the, there's amazing things in my life that I know are a direct direct correlation to me being sober. If I'm not sober, none of this happens. Right. And if, if I drink again, it all goes away. Yeah. I mean, I, and it might not be immediate. It might take a year, but if it's just that's playing with the ultimate fire. Is like if I pick up a drink or a drug. And, and go down that road again, like all this stuff that I have, this, this life that I love is immediately put in jeopardy. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. And, and, uh, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that you could easily die again. I'm not oh. again, sorry, but you, <laughs> you came so damn close so many times. No, I mean, yeah, um, like, but I, I you could die pretty easily. I mean, I lost a friend to drinking um, yeah. three years ago. 
and yep. uh, and it wasn't from an accident or anything. It was like liver couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah, my my sister passed away in 2018 from alcoholism. Oh, so sorry to hear that. Yeah, so I mean, it's like I am well aware of where it can go. Yeah. Um, so tell us about your beautiful life now and the things you're doing. I know you're the founder of the Unbreakable Human Collective. I want to hear about that as well as something yep. that, that I think is really new for you is managing director and the head of culture at Five to Flow. Yeah, so the Unbreakable Human Collective is a um, – it's been an evolution of my coaching. So I, I was a personal trainer for a while and then I got into doing sobriety and recovery coaching. And then from there, I got into mental health coaching. And now um, the Unbreakable Human Collective is my big mission. So my mission is to impact one billion humans. That's one billion. So That's huge. Um, yeah. And so the way I'm going to do the way I'm doing that is through getting on podcasts like this. I just finished up my book um, due for publication in January, February of 2021. And uh, I'm working on a TED Talk. So I got that. So I'm, I'm moving into thought leadership, speaking. Um, I'm going to do men's retreats, men's workshops um, all over the globe at, in many locations. That's coming next year. And um, that's my mission is to to fight the, the toxic masculinity that we have going on in society, to create space for men to open up and have conversations like we're having right now about their mental health, about their addiction. Like I want, so my sister um, passed away because she was a silent sufferer. And there are men out there, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering, the amount of men that suffer in silence from mental illness or addiction. So my thing is like, I want to create this space and create this, this container where men can realize that they don't have to get to be an addict. They don't have to ruin their family. They don't have to end up in jail. They don't have to commit suicide. Like there's a way out before you get to that point. And so if we can have these conversations before it gets to the point of, of depression, anxiety, addiction, all this stuff where, you know, men are losing their life. That's, that's the impact I want to have. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. And you, uh, do you have a title for the book that's going to be published? Yes, I do. It's uh, Save Me. Save so, Me. Yeah, so um, it's got double meaning, right? So the, fir the first half, of the first part of my life before I recognized this story was like, you know, I w that was my thing, like, save me, save me. It was my call for help. My cry for help was save me. And then the second when I realized what, what it actually meant, like, I need to save me. So right. Save, saving me, the, the meaning of save me shifted for me. So that's what the book is going to be about is like learning how to save yourself. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And uh, you have a website for the Unbreakable Human Collective, correct? Yeah. Uh -huh. it's, it's the man unbreakable. Themanunbreakable.com. Yep, themanunbreakable.com. Okay. And uh, do you – I don't know if this is still something current for you or not, but uh, I think I saw some YouTubes and a podcast. Yeah. So the YouTube channel is the Unbreakable Human Collective. Um, the my Instagram is Sam Gibbs Morris at Sam Gibbs Morris. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I am also very active on LinkedIn at Sam Morris on there. And then uh, my the new the new venture you mentioned is um, Five to Flow, which is a business consulting um, collective, where we um, you know we're we're really big on a, like a global consciousness. We want to be we want to come from a place of 
not so much consultancy, but uh, emotional health, emotional intelligence within companies. So we focus on five areas. It's people, process, culture, analytics, and tech. And uh, that, that, that website is 5toflow.com. And um, so we look at, we, we have a, a diagnostic tool that people can take off the website and it will determine which areas, which of those five areas they are deficient in their organization. And then we come in and we have a five-week um, process that we go through with interviewing and asking questions and shadowing and, and looking at, I mean, we look at everything from actual technology they use, whether that's Salesforce or um, Oracle, whatever they use, to um, how their office is set up. Is there an, are there enough plants in the office? Are there, is there enough open space? Like, do, how do people communicate? So we cover everything. That is really cool. Thank you. Um, and is there a particular type of organization that you target? Um, no, actually, we we're I can't really say right now because it's in negotiations. But we are talking to some of the biggest companies in the world. Um, we have we have a our, our client in New Zealand that we're doing a beta run with right now, and then we have some uh, we're talking to a company in London about getting started. I mean, we ju- we literally just launched today, so October November second is our we we did we did a soft launch on October first. Um, but we did a hard press release today, uh, November second. Wow. Fantastic! So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, good exciting. luck with that. Thank you very much. So again, that was five to flow dot com, and then your website for uh, the Unbreakable Human Collective is themanunbreakable dot com. Yep. Yeah. Well, Sam, this is a uh, you're doing some incredible work. Uh, so thank you for that. Hey, Owen, oh, uh, before we wrap up, I can't uh, forget to ask. Um, I always ask at the end of the show if there's somebody out there struggling right now, dealing with depression, or maybe they think they have depression, or like you had um, some pretty serious social anxiety, uh, what would be a piece of advice or suggestion you would give them? Uh, get vulnerable. Um, no one is going to look less on you for talking about what you're struggling with. Find a, another, a buddy of yours, find a friend of yours, find a therapist, um, call me, reach out to me, do something, but get the thoughts out of your head. Um, and again, it's not weakness to admit that you have a problem. The real weakness comes when you give in to the problem and you, and you resort to addiction or suicide or leaving your family. Um, the one thing I can say is just really make that, just pick up the phone and call someone and, and, and just talk about what's going on. Awesome. Huge piece of advice. Reach out for help. Be vulnerable. And uh, I also, I, I always like to say, and I, I really, really believe it, you know, I think sometimes people think it's a weakness if you reach out, and I, I really think it's the strong thing to do. I know how difficult it can be, and I also know how important it can be and how life-saving it can be. So take yes. that step, reach out for help. Um, well, Sam, thank you. Thanks for all the work you're doing in this area. It's awesome. You've obviously found your passion. Um, uh, I know it might be strange coming from me, a stranger, but I'm proud of your years of sobriety and really, really am cheering you on to stay sober. And I'm sure you will. Like you said, you've created this new life for you that you love and where you're helping people. And it's awesome. And then uh, finally, I want to thank you for uh, taking time to be on The Depression Files. Al, thank you so much for having me. Um, it was This was a great conversation. I think that we need to be having more of these conversations. And 
I want to say thank you for creating this space and this container to open this up and, and continue to do what you're doing too, man. Awesome. Really, I'm, I'm really proud of you as well. Hey, thank you very much. And uh, make sure you stay healthy. I uh, will do. You, you're the same. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.